I'd like to begin our lesson this morning by reading a prayer written by John Calvin, one of the reformers. We'll be studying the church at Sardis, which represents the Reformation stage of church history, so I thought it would be appropriate to read a beautiful prayer written by this godly man, John Calvin. If you would bow your heads with me, please. Grant, Almighty God, that as thou hast been pleased to draw us at this day by the light of thy gospel, out of that horrible darkness in which we have been miserably immersed, and to render thy face so conspicuous to us in the person of thine only begotten Son, that nothing but our ingratitude prevents us from being transformed into thy celestial glory. O grant that we may make such advances in the light of truth, that every one of us may be ashamed of his former ignorance, and that we may freely confess that we were lost sheep until we were brought back into the way of salvation by thy hand. And may we thus proceed in the course of our holy calling until we shall at length be all gathered into heaven, where not only that truth shall give us light, which now rules us according to the capacity of our flesh, but where also the splendor of thy glory shall shine in us and shall render us conformable to thine image through Christ alone, our Lord. Amen. As we continue our study of the Lord Jesus Christ's fifth Revelation Church letter, which was written to the first century Christian church assembly of Sardis, we'll consider part four of our outline, which we began to look at last week. Part four is entitled Declaration from Christ. We've already looked at the details about the city of Sardis, and then we looked at some of the details about the church that we know possibly was founded by the Apostle John was one detail we learned. And then we talked about the description of Christ, and now we'll move into the bulk of the letter, the declaration from Christ. And under this section, we're going to look at what the Lord had to say by way of his accusation, his advice, his admonition, his award, and then finally in verse uh, 6, his appeal. Now the obvious omission in this letter is that the resurrected Savior had nothing to say by way of approving commendation to the Sardis church. Even though he didn't point out any fault regarding her toleration of false teachers or mention any compromise that she was having, in particular with pagan practices, yet the fact remains that neither did he point out any particular praise for what she was doing. Let's look at... Uh, his accusation, but what I want to do at this point is just go ahead and reread the whole letter so we get again an overflow of the whole letter. The letter to the church at Sardis, starting at chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord Jesus says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the, sev- hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received, and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. 
and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. In each of his previous letters, the Lord Jesus had followed up his words, I know thy works, which is found, these words are found in each one of the seven church letters. He had followed each of them up with some kind of praise for the positive things that that particular church was doing. For example, look at chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I know thy works, and then he follows it up with a praise, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou, thou cannot spare them which are evil, etc. He does this again in verse 9, and verse 13, and verse um, 19. However, something was seriously wrong in Sardis, because after telling the church located there that he knew their works, and that they had a name, which is the result of a good heritage... Christ stated his primary accusation against them. He said, Thou art dead. We find that in chapter 3, verse 1. Although an outwardly active church, Sardis, which represents the Reformation stage in church history, which was approximately from 1517 to about 1750 A.D., Sardis was, for the most part, a dead church. You notice Christ also said to this church body over in verse 2, I have not found thy works perfect before God. Now that word perfect in this context does not mean that the Lord Jesus was looking for an absolutely perfect church, meaning a church without any flaws, a total absence of flaws. He knows better. He knows that we're human. A church is made up of humans, so there is not going to be a perfect, perfect church while we're here on earth. But in this context, the word perfect means complete or satisfactory. Their works, the Lord was saying, were not complete. They did not satisfy his requirements. You see, while the church was active on the outside and, and they had the external observance of religion in the Sardis church, and they may have looked very satisfactory in the sight of men who see only the outside, and as a matter of fact, men might have even thought that at long last the church had arrived, you know, that it was perfect. But to Christ, who sees with those penetrating eyes of omniscience, he sees with divine insight. Man sees the outside, but God sees the heart. Christ saw that the church was not perfect. It was not complete. So what was missing? What was missing in the church at Sardis? Well, by and large, the Holy Spirit was missing. Most of the members of the church at Sardis were devoid of spiritual life. What else was missing? The Lord Jesus Christ himself was missing because he is life. And other than for just a remnant of the church members, this church was a church in name only. Sardis had a reputation as a church faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ but although she was still faithful to him outwardly and for the most part doctrinally she was no longer connected to him inwardly she was resting in ease on her good name on her heritage 
She was resting in ease on her doctrinal position while she was neglecting her practice. Just like the city in which she existed, the Sardis church had failed to keep alert, and consequently, Satan walked right in her front door and almost thoroughly oversowed her with tears. The Reformation began well because it was definitely a work of God, but sadly, it did not continue well. It had a great name, in fact, for it was good and it was right for the early men and women of the Reformation to protest those things which were wrong in Catholicism. However, most of Protestantism did not proceed to complete the work of reforming the church which had escaped from the domination of Catholicism. In many of the Protestant churches which developed from the Reformation, the practice of infant baptism, for example, was carried over from the days of Emperor Constantine and from the dogma of the Catholic Church. As we've mentioned in previous lessons, this practice eventually filled Protestant churches with many who were unsaved. But they thought that they were Christians just because they had been baptized by their church. So they were self-deceived into thinking they truly were Christians, but they had never been born again. Another way in which the works of the Reformation were incomplete is that most of the denominational Protestant churches continued with the same concept about Bible prophecy of the end times and of the Lord's literal theocratic rule on earth as is held by the Roman Catholic Church. This teaching is essentially that the church on earth is the kingdom which was promised throughout the Old Testament. Furthermore, much division developed among the reformers themselves, particularly about the Lord's Supper, which we'll discuss later in this lesson, and also over such issues as that of predestination versus man's free will. Now, since it has already proven to be beneficial for us to study the progressive history of Christendom so that we better understand not only how the, the creeds and the dogmas and the traditions of our various churches originated and why, but also so that we better understand where we are today in church history and what has caused us to be here, I'm going to devote the remainder of this lesson to a look at the Reformation and the development of the various branches of Protestantism. So this Reformation history lesson, I hope, will help us to better comprehend the Lord's words in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 2, where he said, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. And where he also said, For I have not found thy works perfect or complete before God. From the time of Emperor Constantine, which was 313 A.D., when organized Christendom began to mix heavily with paganism and, and with worldliness and to assume the role of authoritative, quote-unquote, prophetess, 
by adding all kinds of unscriptural teachings to the church. From that time until the time of the Reformation, God had preserved a remnant of people who opposed and rejected the authority and the unbiblical teachings of the Roman church. These people held on to the true gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. They did not acknowledge the authority of the Pope. They looked to the word of God instead as their final and absolute source of authority rather than the church or the Pope. They also encouraged the study of the scripture by the common people. And they observed the Lord's Supper as a memorial rather than as a sacrifice. Furthermore, they had pastors instead of priests. Now, some of these pre-reformist groups, such as the Waldensians, which was begun by a man named Peter Waldo in 1176 A.D., some of these groups sent out lay evangelists to preach the gospel message to those who were lost in the deep spiritual darkness of the medieval dark ages. And as you can imagine, the organized church persecuted these various pre-Reformation groups quite dramatically by way of crusades and inquisitions. And some of these groups of brave people were totally annihilated. Toward the end of the era of time known as the Middle Ages, God began to raise up certain men who began to call for reforms within the organized church. There was, for example, John Wycliffe of England, who was a famous professor of philosophy at Oxford University in the 1300s. Wycliffe, who opposed the authority of both the Pope and the Roman Church, the corruption of the priesthood, he opposed monasticism and the idea of the Lord's Supper being a sacrifice instead of a memorial. That was his chief attack against the church. He urged the Catholic Church to reform itself to New Testament standards and biblical teaching. Wycliffe, as a matter of fact, was known, is known as the Morning Star of the Reformation. And this man was used of God to produce the first Bible in the English language for which we need to be thankful. And he had it sent out by lay preachers called Lollards. These men took the English Bible out to the common people and preached the true gospel. This, of course, caused the church to heavily persecute them and eventually annihilated the Lollards, L-O-L-L-A-R-D-S a group of very, very brave, godly men, one of the groups of the Lord's remnant. Well, as a result of reading John Wycliffe's writings, John Huss, who lived from 1369 to 1415 A.D., began to speak against the same teachings of Catholicism in his homeland of Bohemia. His protest, in fact, caused so much trouble for the Roman church that the Pope had him excommunicated and ordered him to appear before the church council of Constance. He refused, at first, to go, but when the emperor promised him safety, he did go. However, at the council, Huss was condemned and then burned at the stake in spite of the emperor's promise. You see, the church claimed that it was under no obligation to keep its promises to heretics. Another pre-reformer of the 15th century was Girolamo Savonarola, and he was from Florence, Italy, 
He was a fiery preacher. In fact, he was a friar of the Dominican order of the Catholic Church who denounced the church. Savonarola attacked the corruption not only in the organized church, but in society and in government as well. He was a brave man. He was very, very outspoken for his day. And needless to say, he was excommunicated by the Catholic Church. He was excommunicated, he was imprisoned, he was hanged to death, and then his body was taken down and burned by order of the Roman Church. So Satan was clearly attempting to stomp out the early Reformation movement. Now there were a number of issues which were the causes for the protests of these early Reformers. See, the Reformation didn't start till the 1500s, so these men precede the Reformation. They are pre-Reformers. They're the forerunners to the Reformation. Well, there were a number of issues which caused their protests, other than the doctrinal issues that I've already mentioned. For example, it really didn't help Catholics to feel too good about the authority of their church and the authority of their pope, who was supposed to be infallible when he spoke when in 1378 to 1418 there were two or three popes reigning at one time with each of them claiming to be the true pope also in the early 1400s many catholic leaders themselves believed that church councils should run the church rather than popes i imagine they were looking at the popes and their and their lifestyles and their corruption, the corruption that was going on, and realized that the church should be run by councils rather than popes. So this, needless to say, confused the people. Added to this confusion, serious abuses appeared in the church, such as the selling of important church positions to the highest bidder. And the people began to notice how the popes and the higher clergy were living like secular princes, building lavishes, lavish palaces for themselves and indulging in corrupt financial practices. Also, indulgences were sold to the people as a means of buying salvation, which of course cannot be done or as a means of shortening one's time in the unbiblical uh, place called purgatory. So you could shorten your time in purgatory if you gave so much money for the purchase of an indulgence, and the money, of course, went to the church. As a matter of fact, it was the matter of indulgences which first caused a Catholic monk to question his church and his name was Martin Luther. Well, there were also cultural changes which helped to cause the Reformation. In the 1300s, there was a great revival of learning and a renewal of interest in the arts and in the sciences, and this marked the transition from medieval to modern times. This new awakening is known as the Renaissance period. There was a renewal of interest in the classics and in ancient civilization, which, of course, had an important effect on religion. In studying early Christianity, for example, scholars began to see how drastically the church had changed through the centuries from what the apostolic and the post-apostolic persecuted church had been. Furthermore, the study of Hebrew and Greek 
enabled scholars to read the Holy Scriptures in the original languages. The invention of movable type in 1455 helped spread learning through printed books and materials. As a result of this, there was an ever-increasing number of people outside the Catholic priesthood who were gaining an education and seeing firsthand what the Bible really had to say, not just what their church told them it said. All during the time of the Renaissance, a strong middle class and a spirit of nationalism was developing. People began more and more to regard the Pope as a political leader of a foreign state, and they opposed his control and his influence in their own countries. You see, there was a spirit of nationalism arising. They resented the fact that a foreign Pope ruled their national churches and appointed their church leaders and demanded a tax to support himself and to build all kinds of ostentatious, ornate churches in Rome. And they resented the fact that the Pope dictated political policies to their own governments. So God used doctrinal, cultural, economic, and political causes to work together in stirring up a protest against Roman Catholicism. This protest resulted in a new spiritual movement known as the Reformation. Although, as we have seen, there were numerous brave individuals and groups of believers who were the forerunners to the Reformation, most scholars agree that if there is to be an official beginning of the Reformation, it would be in Germany in 1517 with Martin Luther, a monk and a theology professor of the Roman Catholic Church. On October 31, 1517, Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. The theses were a series of statements that directly attacked the sale of indulgences. But these were just the beginning of Luther's call for reform in the church. He later was to criticize many of her other abuses. After his own personal struggle for peace with God, for three years Luther struggled with how to have peace with God, which he was not attaining by being a monk and by being a good member of the Catholic Church. Well, after three years of this struggle, Luther found his answer in Romans 117, where it says, The just shall live by faith. He was enlightened by the Spirit of God, using the Word of God to realize that he could only have peace with God, that he could only be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and not through grace plus works, as Catholicism teaches. This doctrine of justification, this doctrine of salvation by faith in Christ alone, then became the heart of of Luther's belief and his teaching and his writings. And it was indeed biblical. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In January 1521, Pope Leo X 
excommunicated Luther and declared him a heretic. Luther was ordered to appear before the Diet of Worms, which is a council meeting, in Germany in April of 1521, and he was ordered to recant, take back what he had said and what he had written. And his famous answer was this, quote, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have after erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, and I will not, retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. End of quote. So in May of the same year, the emperor signed the Edict of Worms, which was a document that declared Luther an outlaw who anyone could kill without punishment. However, Frederick the Wise, the Prince of Saxony, put Luther under his protective wings, and Martin Luther continued to lead the Protestant movement until his death in 1546. The word Protestant, which means literally one who protests, was first used at the Diet of Speyer, S-P-E-Y-E-R, in Germany in the year 1529. At that diet or meeting, princes who supported Luther in Germany registered a formal protest against the rulings of the Catholic Church which had condemned Lutheran doctrine. So from that time forward, all others who called for reforms in the Catholic Church were called Protestants or Protestants. Now, I want you to realize that none of the early reformers at first wanted to leave the Catholic Church. All of these men were Catholics. They, it was not their desire to leave the Church. They were merely asking for her to repent of some of her erroneous practices and doctrine. They wanted her to reform from within. However, at the Council of Trent in 1545, which was held by the Catholic Church in response to the early Protestant movement, the Roman Church made it very clear at that council that she would not change. In fact, in the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent, there are more than 100 anathemas or curses of damnation against Protestant beliefs. In 1530, the Lutherans presented the Augsburg Confession to the Diet of Augsburg, and it became the basic statement of Lutheran doctrine. Lutheranism then became or was the earliest major Protestant movement and it spread rapidly throughout northern Germany and then over into the Scandinavian nations. Well, while the Reformation was officially beginning in Germany, at the same time it was also springing up in Switzerland under the leadership of Huldreich Swingley. Now, Swingley or Swingley was a Catholic priest, again, a Roman Catholic, in Zurich, Switzerland. 
and he, like Luther, began to call for reform in the Catholic Church. His proposed reforms went even more uh, were even more radical than Luther's. In fact, in 1529, the two men, Luther and Zwingli, met together in Marburg, Germany, to discuss their major disagreements and their primary one was over the matter of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper which we discussed uh, several lessons ago called transubstantiation for more details on that you can go back two lessons to lesson number 16 well Luther held on to the idea of a mystical presence of Christ being in the elements of the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. He taught, Luther taught, that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament by which God gives people his grace rather than as simply a memorial ordinance which remembers the Lord's great sacrifice. Luther believed and he taught that the body and the blood of Christ coexist in the elements of the bread and the wine. Now, this Lutheran doctrine, which is not as definitive as transubstantiation, but nonetheless claims a mystical presence of Christ in the elements, is called consubstantiation. And it is still the doctrine of the Lutheran Church today. On the other hand, Zwingli considered the Lord's Supper as a thanksgiving to God for grace already given. And he believed that the bread and the wine were merely symbols of Christ's body and blood. Well, the two men couldn't come to an agreement. Both held firmly to what they believed. And the difference in their opinions over the Lord's Supper resulted in the first major split in Protestantism. Under the leadership of Zwingli, the Reformed Church began. And by the way, uh, Zwingli died in 1531, serving as a chaplain with the Protestant troops during a war with Catholics. In the 1530s, a French reformer named John Calvin combined the ideas of Luther and Zwingli. Now, Calvin helped to establish Protestantism in Geneva, Switzerland, and from there he directed efforts to convert the people of France and other countries of Western Europe. Calvin himself was French. He was a refugee from France. He was escaping the Catholic Church. Calvin had studied law and the classics before he became a Protestant. In his work, entitled Ecclesiastical Ordinances, he established the structure of a Presbyterian form of church government in which a council of elders rules each local church. Calvin's teachings strongly influenced people in England and in France, in the Netherlands, and in Scotland. In England, many of his followers became known as Puritans, In France, Calvin's followers were called Huguenots. The Scottish reformer John Knox introduced Calvin's teachings in Scotland. The Catholic kings of France attempted to suppress the Huguenots. They were the followers of Calvin in France. And the Catholic kings tried to suppress them in a series of religious wars which lasted over 30 years. 
beginning on St. Bartholomew's Day, which is August 24, 1572, uh, the pro-Catholic party murdered thousands of Huguenots in Paris and in the French provinces. In the bloody massacre which followed, they say that 10 to 20,000 Protestants were butchered for their faith. But Protestantism in France survived as a minority religion, although Catholicism dominated and still does today. The Anglican, or the Episcopalian movement, started in England. Anglicans who settled in the American colonies separated from the Church of England and they formed what is called the Protestant Episcopal Church. But the Episcopal Church did come from the original Anglican Church in England. Anglicanism resulted from the Act of Supremacy in 1534 in which King Henry VIII declared his independence from the Pope, even though personally he remained a Catholic, but he did declare his independence from the Pope. However, Protestantism made great advances in England under his son, Edward VI. Queen Mary I, known as Bloody Mary, succeeded Edward VI in 1553 and she restored Catholicism as the state religion of England and she did so by severely persecuting the Protestants. As a matter of fact, she executed 300 Protestant pastors and forced the rest of them to flee from England. But Queen Elizabeth I, who reigned from 1558 to 1603, established a moderate form of Protestantism that has become known as Anglicanism. In response to Queen Elizabeth's establishment of Anglicanism as the State Church of England, the Pope began to train Jesuit priests to conduct guerrilla warfare in England. The Jesuit order of the Catholic priesthood was established then in order to fight Protestantism and to spread the faith of the Roman Church. Jesuits are a monastic order and they were trained to use unethical means to obtain their goals. They were successful in regaining Poland and regaining the southern Netherlands and large parts of Germany for the Roman Church. Also, Jesuit missionaries spread Catholicism to North and South America, to Africa, and to Asia as well. In addition to his use of Jesuit warfare against England, the Pope also persuaded Spain's king, a Catholic, to attempt to conquer England back for the Roman Church by sailing the great Spanish Armada against her. The Armada sailed in 1588, but she suffered a very embarrassing defeat due to good English seamanship, due to bad weather at sea, and also due to other circumstances that were beyond human control. God himself had intervened and destroyed the naval power of the Pope's most powerful ally. Consequently, this defeat of the Spanish Armada aided the cause of Protestantism not only in England but elsewhere in Europe. As already mentioned, those English people who followed the teachings of John Calvin 
were called Puritans. And they opposed Anglicanism because it was Episcopal, meaning that it was governed by bishops. The Puritans preferred the Presbyterian form of church government. Furthermore, they wanted more personal rather than prescribed prayers. Uh, Puritans stressed grace. They stressed devotion and prayer and self-examination. They were called Puritans because of their attempt to purify the Church of England, the Anglican Church. You know, until the 1900s, when the laity had, had more of a voice in the church, Anglican churches were completely ruled by bishops and priests and deacons. The Archbishop of Canterbury ranks as the senior bishop. So there's a lot of carryover from Roman Catholicism in the Anglican Church. Anglicans, in fact, view themselves as a bridge church between Catholicism and Protestantism. All Anglican churches are very active today in the World Council of Churches and in the ecumenical movement. Well, back in Zurich, Switzerland... During the 1520s, there was another Protestant group known as the Swiss Brethren, and they were led by a man named Conrad Grebel. Grebel was convinced that the scripture does not teach infant baptism, which was still being performed in all of the other Protestant movements. The Swiss Brethren, therefore, soon became known as Rebaptizers, or Anabaptists because the adults of this church who had been baptized as infants were all being re-baptized after they came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. The Anabaptists were not satisfied with Protestant efforts to reform Christianity, thinking they had not gone far enough to change a number of things. For example, they did not believe that Luther's teaching of consubstantiation had gone far enough in getting the mystical presence of Christ out of the elements. Um, They did not believe that the Protestant movement had gone far enough in removing infant baptism from their doctrinal statements. They did not believe uh, in the Anglican form of church government, which still included a priesthood, and had a large separation between the clergy and the laity. They also opposed the idea of state churches and the policy of many of the Protestant movements to persecute those of contrary beliefs and the continued idea of most Protestant divisions that the church is the promised kingdom in the Old Testament prophecies. The Anabaptists, you see, believed in a future theocratic, literal, 1,000-year reign of Christ. They also believed strongly in separation of church and state. They opposed government involvement and interference in religion. So, because of their difference in these areas, the Anabaptists were persecuted severely by both Catholic and Protestant authorities. Sad to say. Well, during the late 1500s in England, the Puritans, remember they were the followers of John Calvin, the ones who were trying to purify the Anglican Church, they started finally to understand that they could not reform the church from within. So they separated from it, and because of this they were called separatists. 
Soon after that, however, they were also known as Congregationalists because of their belief in the rights of local congregations to rule their own local churches. In the early 1600s, an English clergyman named John Smith, S-M-Y-T-H, led a group of these separatists or Congregationalists to the Netherlands. He and his followers, just like the Anabaptists, believed that only people who were old enough to understand and to express their faith in Christ should be baptized. So Smith's group became known as Baptists. The Puritans, the Separatists, and the Baptists all spread into colonial America mostly to get away from the domination of the state Anglican Church of England. The Pilgrims were a separatist group led by William Brewster, and they established the Plymouth Colony in 1620 in the American colonies. In 1638, the religious leader Roger Williams founded a Baptist church in Providence in the Rhode Island Colony. By the 1900s, the Baptist Church ranked as the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. In the early 1700s, an English clergyman named John Wesley, assisted by his brother Charles Wesley, set out to reform the Anglican Church of England on many of the similar issues of the Puritans. John Wesley preached doctrines that were highly evangelical, meaning that they emphasized the need for having a personal, saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. However, he was not satisfied with the Anglican response to his reform. So, in 1744, he organized the Methodist movement, which grew rapidly, not only in England, but later on in the United States of America. Pietism, which began in Europe in the late 1600s, stressed the importance of, of having personal devotion and morality as true expressions of genuine faith. Methodism, Pietism, and various other evangelical churches, such as the Baptists, the Mennonite, and the Huterites, greatly began to then influence other Protestant denominations and it was from these that the great missions movement began, which we'll look at when we get to the church at Philadelphia, which represented the mission stage in church history. Well, the Protestant Reformation emphasized three New Testament truths. The preeminent one was justification by faith alone. The pagan concept of human works for salvation was totally rejected and the original gospel once again was declared as it had been in the days of the, of the early church. The second emphasis of the Reformation was upon the priesthood of the believer. The reformers discarded the Roman church's wide division between clergy and laity other than the Anglican church which still continued with this division, but more moderate than Rome's. And instead, the reformers stressed the scriptures teaching that every Christian is a priest before God and therefore has the privilege of ministering and praying and studying the Bible on his or her own. The third emphasis of the Reformation was that the Bible, not the church, 
the Bible is the final and absolute authority for both faith and practice. Although these New Testament truths stressed by the Protestant reformers are good and they are right, they are biblical, yet the Lord's own words to the church at Sardis, which represents this stage in church history, his own words were that her works were not perfect. In other words, they were not satisfactory in that they were not complete. Even though all the Protestant groups had rejected most of the false teachings of Roman Catholicism, yet many retained some of its beliefs and practices. For example, most Protestant churches continued to reject, as Catholicism also rejects, the concept of a future literal theocratic rule of Christ on earth. And instead, they taught that the church herself is the kingdom on earth. Many, many Protestant groups also taught that the church was to operate basically as Israel had operated in Old Testament days, because they saw the church and Israel as essentially the same. This is a part of the teaching which is called covenant theology, as opposed to dispensational theology, which teaches that Israel and the church are distinct entities. So this, to them, meant that the Protestant church, because they believed in covenant theology, where the church and Israel are essentially the same, this meant to them that the Protestant church and the state, meaning the government of whatever country it would be, were to be united with the state enforcing the church's policies. <laughs> Therefore, each state Protestant faith sought to include entire national populations in their particular branch of Protestantism. Some even brought great disgrace to the Protestant movement by persecuting those who held other beliefs, such as was done to the Anabaptists. And so, you see, they had resorted to the same tactics as the Roman Church. Furthermore, as I've already mentioned more than once already, in most Protestant churches, the practice of infant baptism was retained. And as a consequence of this, many church members considered themselves Christians simply because they had been baptized as a child or because they had been confirmed into the church. And they weren't really born again, but they were self-deceived into thinking they were Christians. A very serious deficiency in the Reformation teachings, except for in a few groups that we've already talked about, was the lack of instruction in Bible prophecy, which was another carryover from Roman Catholicism. John Calvin, for example, didn't even think that the book of Revelation should have been canonized into the scripture. Most Protestant churches taught either amillennialism or postmillennialism. Amillennialism is the belief that the future kingdom of God is spiritual in nature, that it consists either of the church on earth or of Christ's present rule from heaven 
over the hearts of believers. So they spiritualize away all the passages of scripture which talk about a literal millennial kingdom. Post-millennialism is the belief that the kingdom of God will not be established through the supernatural intervention of Christ at his second coming, but that it will be established through human efforts through the, and through the expanding influence of the church, and that Christ's second coming will occur at the close of the millennial golden age. But that age is brought about by human effort, by the, by the church having a positive influence on this world and bringing in a golden age at the end of which Christ will come. That's post-millennialism. Because of this, the Lord's literal coming for his church in the rapture and his pre-millennial second coming, meaning that he will come before the thousand-year reign in order to judge the nations and then to literally rule on earth for 1,000 years. These were teachings which were heard by very few people during the Sardis stage of church history. So is it any wonder then that the Lord, in speaking to the Sardis church, emphasized her need to be watchful? Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. Be watchful. You see, the tendency is to get complacent and sleepy and lethargic when one doesn't properly understand the imminency of the Lord's return at the rapture. The imminency meaning that he could return at any one moment. It is this constant hope of the Lord's return for his own, which really helps to inspire Christians to keep themselves holy and pure and separated from worldliness and to remain steadfast and alert in being consecrated and useful to the Lord Jesus because they don't want to be ashamed at his coming. It is the, the hope, the blessed hope of the church that the Lord could return at any moment which keeps us watchful. Protestant churches, for the most part, eventually settled into a condition of deterioration. When Catholic persecution ended after the Thirty Years' War in 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia, many of the Protestant churches settled back in ease and they grew comfortable and content living on their name, living on their heritage, and growing careless about their position. You know, it is when church leaders and when church members get accustomed to their blessings and when they get complacent about their ministry that the enemy can slip right in the front door as both King Cyrus of Persia and Antiochus the Great of Greece had done in conquering the ancient city of Sardis. Another factor which very likely caused the Lord to say that the works of the Sardis church were not perfect is the denominational barriers which were created at this time in his church. The divisions which developed in the Sardis stage of church history were man-made divisions. They were not God's divisions. The Reformation work was not satisfactory or complete because the early reformers, with regard to some issues, put the teachings of men and the traditions of men above the teachings of the scripture. 
more in-depth study of God's Word and more combined prayer would most likely have resulted in God's blessing of enlightenment so that the reformers could come together in the unity of love and oneness for which Christ prayed in his high priestly prayer of John 17. You know, the oneness that Jesus desires for his church is not an ecumenical oneness which is going on today. That is not what the Lord wanted, where doctrine is thrown out the window, where the true gospel doesn't even matter. He was praying for a oneness that the true body of Christ is to have because of her position in him and her love for him. The body of Christ, we're told in Ephesians 4, 4, is one body. Now, to divide the body, as has been done as a result of the Reformation, is therefore to deprive the body of its vitality and its life and its witness to the outside world. Although the word of God was stated in theory and in creed to be the sufficient rule of faith and practice in the Reformation churches, yet in the years that followed, in practice and in actual belief among many of the church leaders and people, it was otherwise. The Holy Spirit was not restored by the Reformation to his place of supremacy in Christ's body, the church. If he had been acknowledged and honored, then there would never have been such diversity in the church. For there is one body and there is one spirit. You see, although Protestantism was a written doctrinal return to the apostolic church in most areas other than those I've already mentioned, yet it was not a living practical return to the early New Testament church of Christ. The fragments of a broken body are what we have today as a result of the work of the Reformation. Protestantism is not a perfect work because it has failed to exhibit to the world the perfect unbroken body of Christ. The Reformation was not a return to the apostolic church. Protestantism today has a great heritage. It has a great name. It has a name that it lives. But overall, from a spiritual perspective, it is dead. And those are not my words. Those are Christ's words. Although there are always the exceptions in God's true remnant, many Protestant churches are just going through the form, and they are going through the ritual and the ceremony and the recital of their creeds and even the recital of their written prayers. But the Holy Spirit is not present. Souls are not being saved. The gospel, in its pure simplicity and clarity, is not being preached. Therefore, Satan is really not persecuting Sardis-type churches today, because he doesn't need to. He's already oversown them with many of his own, and he doesn't need to because nothing is going on in them to cause him any real concern. Not much does take place, you know, in a dead church. 
Well, what then, we might ask, is this spiritually dead church to do? Well, the glorified Christ gave five key commands in the next two verses, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. And these are important for us to take notice of because we can apply them to our own individual lives if and whenever we feel convicted of having become complacent and spiritually sleepy in our own Christian lives. Hopefully we can also use them if we believe that we are a member of a dead church. What is his advice? Well, let's reread it in verses 2 and 3a where the Lord says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Let's stop there. A remnant of true, dedicated people can exist even in a dead church. Even though the true Christians of Sardis had life, it was very feeble life. Yet, there, where there is life at all, there is hope. The five commands given by Christ were given to the, the believers in the church at Sardis. Now, he did not speak to the dead members, obviously, because if you are dead, you cannot hear. The dead members would not have heard him. What did he say then to the true believers, even though they were sleepy and not being very watchful? What did the Lord Jesus Christ say to them? Well, he said, first of all, be watchful. Secondly, strengthen. Third, remember. Fourth, hold fast. And fifth, repent. So what we have here is a formula from Christ himself for revival. Revival even in a dead church. The Lord's advice to the decaying church of Sardis began with the command, Be watchful. And this was a very appropriate command for the church located in the city which had twice been lost to enemy attackers because of having failed to be on guard watching over the city. This is what we talked about in our last lesson. The first step then toward renewing a dying church or a dying church member is an honest awareness that something is wrong and that someone needs to be alert. Be watchful. How does a church body or an individual, how do they know if they are living, spiritually speaking? How would they know that they're living or dead? Well, we can very simply answer that question by asking how we know that any organism is living. How do we know that any organism is alive? Well, we know because of growth. If it is alive, there will be growth. If it is alive, there will be reproduction. There also will be repair, meaning that the organism will heal any wound to itself. And we also know that there is life when there is power, meaning when there is at least strength to hold itself up. Now, if these elements are not there, then the organism is either dead or almost dead. What was the church to be watchful about? 
Well, for one thing, she needed to be watchful with regard to the enemy. For the most part, the Sardian church members had not been watchful. And therefore, they had not even been aware that the enemies of complacency and lethargy and indifference had crept right in and taken them captive. For another thing, the Sardis church was not being watchful with regard to the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. If she had been living in constant expectation of his arrival, she would have been awake and watching. The church is to be looking for that blessed hope, Titus 2.3, for it will help to keep her alert and pure, not wanting to be ashamed before him at his coming. 1 John 2.28 For the most part, however, few Protestant denominations teach about the rapture of the church, or for that matter, the Lord's second coming. The second command of advice that Christ gave the believers of Sardis was to strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, as he says in verse 2. They were not to give in just because their church, by and large, was dead and because the remainder were weak and dying. There was good doctrinal teaching in the early days of the Sardis church, which is said to have been established by the preaching of the Apostle John, just as there was also good doctrinal teaching in the days of the early Reformation. The believers here are exhorted by the Lord to take these truths which yet remained, at least in the creeds of the Protestant churches, and strengthen them. In other words, they were not only to recite them, they were to live them and teach them and preach them. Thirdly, the Christians of Sardis were told to remember. The Lord said to them, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. And this speaks of their need to return mentally to the days of their beginning blessings under the Apostle John's teaching. And it also speaks of the need of those in the Protestant movement to remember the early blessings and revival which were the result of searching the scriptures and depending on God the Holy Spirit and God the Son instead of upon the state church and upon ritual and form and ceremony and written creeds and books of prescribed prayer. The Protestant movements of the Reformation were all born in a time of great revival. They were the work of the Holy Spirit, enlightening the spiritual eyes of men and women to the great doctrinal treasures of the Word of God, which had long been hidden from Christendom in general. However, when the first movings of God are forgotten and a church settles down, it becomes an institution. The dynamic and the vision of the early years are replaced with a more traditionalized, formal, stereotyped, and complacent form of activity. So the movement becomes eventually a monument. Sardis was to remember what at first she had received and heard and to do her best to hold fast to those truths and to her original excitement and zeal about them. So holding fast then is the fourth key command given by Christ to the Sardis church. This command was a warning to adhere wholeheartedly to the doctrines clearly taught in the word of God.
which they already had. It's just too bad that so many of the Protestant denominations of the church stage of Sardis did not hold fast to what they once had. They did not, by and large, heed the Lord's advice and were, with the 17th to the 19th century rise of rationalism and empiricism and deism, they were swept along in the advancing tide of neo-orthodoxy, compromising on the sound doctrinal position that had characterized the original reformers. The fifth and the final key command given to the Sardian believers was to repent. Repentance not only involves an act of turning toward God, but doing so with a submissive heart. The Reformation churches needed to turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the leading of the Holy Spirit. They needed to repent of having fallen asleep. They needed to ask uh, Christ's help. They needed to seek His will and the Spirit's teaching and guidance rather than to accept their own preconceived ideas about interpreting Scripture, which had led so many of them astray on one particular area or another. Had they truly been willing to repent, there is no doubt that the Holy Spirit would have guided them into all truth. Because they did not, the divisions created in Protestantism remain, and they give the world a disjointed and a fractured testimony of the body of Christ. So the revival formula for that which is ready to die, whether it's a church or an individual, is to be watchful. Strengthen that which you already have, no matter how weak it may be. Remember the truths of God's word that you already have received and heard. Remember the first days of zeal over finding the golden treasures of truth in God's word. And hold fast to that word. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to the Holy Spirit's guidance and instruction. And lastly, repent of the sin of slothfulness and complacency you have allowed yourself to slip into and repent of the condition of spiritual sleepiness into which you have fallen. To the various denominations of the Reformation, Christ also says, Wake up and repent and hold fast and remember the wonderful hidden treasure of my word which you once found and repent for not having held on to it so tightly that you are still preaching the how-to-be-born-again gospel message and evangelizing the lost. You who still hold to my truths, strengthen one another. Work together to wake up the rest of the church before it's too late. And I come upon them as a thief. We see that in Revelation 3, verse 3. Strengthen those who do hold to the truth and who haven't forgotten the importance of escaping from a works system of religion. That's what Christ says to the denominations, the Protestant denominations of the Reformation. I want to close with this quote from Theodore H. Epp, who was the founder and director of Back to the Bible broadcast. In his commentary on the book of Revelation, he says this, quote, We may think that this message to Sardis applies to some other church than the one we belong to. 
But God is speaking to the fundamental church of today, the Bible-believing church. He is speaking to the fundamental believer. There is a drift among today's Orthodox to be doctrinally correct but spiritually ineffective. This is not true of all churches, but we know it is possible to be active for the Lord and yet be spiritually dead in his sight. Remember that when the power of God left Samson, Samson didn't know it. End of quote. And I would like to close again by using a prayer written by one of the early reformers, John Calvin. Grant, Almighty God, that as thou shinest on us by thy word, we may not be blind at midday, nor willfully seek darkness, and thus lull our minds asleep. But may we be roused daily by thy words, and may we stir ourselves up more and more to fear thy name, and thus present ourselves in all our pursuits as a sacrifice to thee, that thou mayest peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until thou gatherest us to thy celestial habitation where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.